welcome to How Did I End Up Here? The podcast where we find out exactly that. How did you end up here? There are a few people whose lives are linear and for the rest of us, we might start out in one direction and end up somewhere completely different that we had never imagined. We have to pivot and uh, move for lots of different reasons, but I don't think anything is wasted. And when we look back, So much of what we have done has brought us to where we are now and given us the skills and knowledge we need and taught us many different things. Over these episodes, we're going to be talking to some wonderful people and finding out how they ended up here. As it's December and Christmas is coming and it's my favourite time of the year, I thought I would invite a special guest onto the podcast as we end 2023 and the first year of the podcast. So the special guest is the oldest guest that we have had on the podcast so far and also the only male No, it's not Father Christmas. I hate to disappoint you all, but it is my father. So today's guest is my dad and his name is David Chawner. So let's find out how he ended up here. Hello, Dad, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Susie, and uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, welcome. You're, You're our first male podcast guest, which is very exciting. It's nice to be a token male. Well, you know. (laughs) There needs to be one every so often, right? Um, So welcome, welcome. We're going to dive right into the questions, if that's all right. I might learn something about you. You never know. I don't already know. All your secrets might suddenly come out. So that'll be fun. (laughs) Um, So first question I ask everybody is, what did you want to be when you were little? When people asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? Well, a variety of things at different points, really, and it's a long way back. I'm also the oldest person on this yeah. podcast, so diving into the depth of memory here. Uh, but um, like a lot of little boys at that stage, which was I was born in '46, so it was sort of early '50s when I first remember these sort of questions, or mid '50s. Uh, an engine driver was a thing, you know, oh, always yeah. wanted to be in those days. But also, as I got a little bit older. Music was a big part of life around me and of my life, but I wanted to be a conductor, an orchestral conductor. That um, came really from my grandfather, who I was very close to, spent a lot of time with, and he conducted choirs. He used to conduct the, the Sunday school anniversary, etc. And and I, I admired him, and I liked the idea of conducting. At one point, I fancied the law and being a barrister. Um and um all all sorts of things uh you know different bits of things i i I enjoy acting so i I kind of fancied that but a lot of those things when i look back at them were to do with performing and words the idea of a barrister was was the idea of speaking you know i was also very interested in politics politics surrounded me as well at home so there was all that going on and it wasn't until i guess I, I always think everything happened to me at the age of 12. Why? I've not worked out, really. <laughs> that was almost a kind of critical time in my life. But somewhere around that age, I decided I wanted to be a vet. Now, don't ask me why I wanted to be a vet, because I had no links with vets. I'd never met a vet. 
Um, <clears throat> I'd had had animals. We had a hamster and then I had a rabbit and then eventually had a dog. So I must have been about nine when we got the dog. Uh, Rusty, his name was. Was um, he rusty coloured? Yeah, he was a Labrador, golden Labrador. Oh, nice. And so I enjoyed animals. And mm. So whether that was it, but it just stuck in my mind. Mm. Um, for no good reason at all. Really. <laughs> yeah, it's decided that was that was it then. Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was it. That was what my whole life became orientated towards. Although there was lots of other things in my life, not yeah. just that, but my in terms of ac- academic career, that's what it um, it all got focused towards. Mm. So then, so then, what did you do towards becoming a vet? So you talked about academic. What was your schooling like, and all, and then university and all? Because studying to become a vet is it's quite hard work. It's not easy, is it? Well, it's not too bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're going back. You're going back a long way. Yeah, maybe it's worse now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it. I was a primary school, and um, I did. You know, I, I was blessed to to have a reasonable academic. Uh, I would say into you could say intellectual ability, but I wouldn't say I was intellectual. <laughs> uh, but it um, had reasonable academic ability, performed well at uh, eleven plus because it was in the old days of eleven plus, and they, you know, that 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 put me in a position where I went to grammar school, and therefore was in and was in top stream at grammar school. So was was headed on towards the possibility and this was going into the 60s i mean i went to uh, when i was b11 57 58 i went to secondary water grammar school and um that opened a possibility which none of my family had ever had because i was brought up on a council estate my parents were not daft by any means but their opportunities my father went to grammar school but couldn't go on to university because they couldn't afford it my mother got an opportunity to go to grammar school, but they couldn't afford the uniform, so she couldn't go. Um, <clears throat> so I had that opportunity. There was a sense of making, that was never under any pressure, but making the most of that. Yeah. And um, so the opportunity was there. And in the 60s, again, you didn't need the money because we had grants. So I could aim towards that. So when it came to choosing subjects, which you did when you were in fourth year, I don't know what that's called now, but fourth year at grammar mm. school, um, just going into your O levels, and then you had to choose in those days between arts or sciences. Now, <clears throat> I did love art. I'm not art itself, but but I loved a lot of the art side, history particularly. But I, I had to make a choice, so I went down the sciences route: chemistry, physics, biology, um, because that would lead towards qualifications for you know to to get to vet college. Yeah. I, knew where, I knew where I wanted to go and that, that's what I did. So that, that was the career path, as it were, academically. academically yeah. 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 And um, so na- nowadays you have to do UCAS and you have to have like a few options for university. Was it the same then or did you just apply to one university and that's where you wanted to go? Yeah, you had a choice. I mean, in terms of vet colleges, there was Bristol, London, Liverpool, Glasgow, and Edinburgh. Okay. So, so it was a very limited choice. London was was the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. I applied to Bristol, London, and Edinburgh. I really wanted to go to Edinburgh for a variety of reasons, which I won't bore you with, but that was my, fa- my father had been up, stationed up there during the war and spoke of it as a nice place. Uh, the Nottingham University, we had a sixth form conference there talking about going to university, and they their advice was get as far away from home as you possibly can. 
and that they were reluctant to take people from Nottingham unless they really had no other choice. Yeah. And um, so Edinburgh, I fancied, had a had an interview at Bristol. I'll never forget that because that was like there were about nine people stretched across a table, in, you know, a long table interview. It was like the last supper, really. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's intense as well when you're young and you're not used to that sort of thing. Yeah, you're only, what, much. 17? You yeah. <laughs> and um, I went down to London, had an interview there. They offered me a place at Bristol, but that was um, huge um, qualifications. London, I don't think I got offered a place there. But Edinburgh, I never had an interview. The dean, the dean of the faculty decided that interviews were a waste of time and um, that you couldn't tell any more from an interview than you could from their academic record and the school reports, etc. And Edinburgh was interested in turning out, a lot of the others were interested in turning out scientists. Mm. Edinburgh was interested in turning out practitioners. Yeah. And so he just looked at the school record and I got this acceptance and all I required was two A-level passes. Wow. No grades, no nothing, just two passes at A level. So wow. that was that was you know yeah that was it really. <laughs> I, I, I've never been one for taking the hard route. <laughs> <Take the, laughs> that's the best. I think, that, I think that might run in the family. <laughs> yeah, well, your mother was the same. If, it's, <laughs> if we can find the easier way, we'll do it. <laughs> it's almost the best way. Yeah. <laughs> so I accepted that and um, then worked towards that. And in fact, an interesting sort of shows my attitude to life, really. Uh, when it came to the mock A-levels, which was immediately after Christmas, it was January. So I'd, I'd done very little work, I have to say. I'd done very little work. And particularly in the, um, we did zoology, not biology at A-level. I never worked out why that was, but um, that was what was on offer. Yeah. In the zoology, I, I made a mess of it. And I knew I'd made a mess of it because, you know. I'd done you haven't done work. any work. <laughs> And I didn't really get on with the guy. It was a new um, master who was teaching us um, at zoology, and I never really got on with him. And he he thought his way of encouraging me to do better was to tell me I would never, I would, didn't stand any chance of passing the A level. So I thought, well, that's all right then. If he doesn't think I've any chance of passing it, I only need two passes, and I know I can do physics and chemistry. So I'll just focus on them. So all I ever got was two A level. I mean, I did very well at O level. Yeah. Um, but when it came to A-level, that's all I need. That's yeah. all I need to do all the other yeah. things I wanted to do. So what was the point? Again, take the easy route. Yeah. Um, let's get to where we want to be and go from there. And the advantage of that was when I got to, well, it wouldn't have made any difference, actually, if I'd passed zoology, because Edinburgh required you to do biology. And so I would have had to have done the first year, which we did with the medics and the dentists, um, which was physics, chemistry and biology. Well, most of it I'd just done. Yeah. So it was a doddle of a year, really. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we just sort of had a good time, you know. Yeah. Um, and because, is, that be is that because the Scottish school system is different and you do like four years at university rather than no, No, it was because you needed to have some idea of plants for pharmacology. Ah, uh, that makes sense. That was that was the idea. Not that I ever got that interested in plants, to be honest, but um, uh, that that was the reasoning for it, because it was a five year course for veterinary medicine. Uh, I managed to take six uh, uh, because it's... because a, an enduring theme of my life has been being involved in so many things at the same time mm -hmm. that um, <clears throat> I mean, that must come as a big shock to you. 
Oh, we know. Yeah, no, I think we've had that conversation a few times in recent years. <laughs> well, when it came to uh, when it when it came to my fourth year, I think it was. By which time you knew you weren't going to be thrown out of college. The big exams were what we called the second professionals. If you got through those, they get you through somehow. And um, there were three subjects. What was it? Um, pathology was one. Pharmacology and I can't think what the other one was. There were three subjects. And uh, I messed up two of the, out of the three, the first exams. And then we did the resits and I got two out of the three. Well, if you got two out of the three, you had to repeat the year, but you only did the one topic. If you failed two out of the three, then you had to repeat all three. So I spent a whole year doing pathology, which was great because I got myself so involved in other things. And particularly then nationally, I was involved in a thing called the Baptist Students Federation, which was a national thing for Baptist students. And the previous year, I'd organised the conference, the annual conference at High Lee. And then this year, I was president of it. So there was all sorts of responsibilities going backwards and forwards to London for committee meetings and stuff. Yeah. So it was great spending a year doing pathology. Yeah. Uh, I worked with one of the pathology professors and did some work for him on the side, bits and pieces. Fun. Yeah. It was quite fun. And I could indulge other things so that then when I came to my final year, I got all that out of the way and I could go for it. What's more, we were due to be married uh that year um uh 69 it was wasn't it yeah um, and um so that should have been my graduation year so it would have been extra pressure then so yeah then we got married then i had my final year which was pressured we yeah. always say if we survived that year um <laughs> oh it was horrible um <laughs> year of marriage um, and your mum would say the same because yeah. i knew i would get no more grant I only only got up to six years of grant, so I had to get through. Yeah. And um, I don't know this, but uh, anyway, when it came to the finals, I was absolutely convinced um, that I'd failed my surgery. I got myself into such a state of mind that I I was convinced I'd failed the surgery. And I was waiting for you. We'd do do a uh, written exam, a practical exam, then you'd have the oral exam at the end. And there was also an outside examiner, external examiner came in for the orals. And if you got the ex- external, you, you knew who you were going to get to do your yeah. external, uh, you do your interview or oral exam. Um, if you got the external examiner, it meant one of two things. Either you were OK, so it was a bit of relaxation. Yeah. Or it meant that you were really on the borderline or really in a mess. And they were trying to get, get you through. Yeah. And I got the external. And I was oh, sat no. there, I remember it was out at the field station outside Edinburgh. We were doing these oral exams and I was sat there and one of the other lecturers in, in uh, surgery came through and he said, you look very worried. I said, I am. <laughs> you know? He said, don't worry, you've nothing to worry about. Oh, um, I didn't know whether he was just trying to encourage me or whatever. So I got in there and the guy was from Dublin Vet College, the external, and he kicked off and he said, uh, uh, in, in this wonderful Irish accent, he said, you go to see a horse and when you get there, it's got a, an injury to its chest and there's a piece of lung sticking out. What would you do? Well, I'd never come across that. I had no and I looked at him blank. He said, do you know what I would do? He said, I'd just stick a piece of plaster over it. <laughs> you could plaster. He said, that happened to me the very first time I went out to a get and he just went off. I thought, I'm I'm either totally failed here, which I didn't yeah. know totally failed, or I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> so and he's just ran away. Yeah. In the end I scraped through. <laughs> Wowzers. Wowzers. That, and and like you said, there's a lot, isn't there? Because you if you're doing a written exam 
a practical thing and an oral that's a lot of it's a lot of different ways of working as well isn't it and using your brain which is quite pressured really it it was an intense we did five years it was nine to five lectures every day except wednesday wednesday afternoon off first year we had um saturday mornings as well so and i was trying to do a million other things you know i was playing sport i was in the baptist students group i was involved in the or oh, you name it every friday we went to the debate and society every saturday we went and watched football um you know and uh, saturday, you morning, saturday morning often playing hockey in the intramural league and not that i was any good at hockey but uh, in fact they put me in goal because i used to annoy the girls because it was a mixed team male and female the girls who some of whom could one, one was a good hockey player really got cross with me at one point pushed me out of the way so they stuck me in goal and I thought, well, this is easy. This is, this is, you know, death or glory in goal. <laughs> Until we played the Catholic Society, who only turned up with about seven guys, but they all played for the university, which made a big difference. Oh, no. They could whack it in from the wing and hit it. It was coming past my ears and everything, you know. I thought, no, this ain't for me. This is a dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, <Okay>. anyway. <laughs> Hockey is definitely a... a... A sport you have to love to play it because it is full on. Yeah, not not for yeah, me. I used to laugh at school that the girls who played hockey thought it was a pathetic game, but I discovered it wasn't. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely very hard to play hockey. So there you are. You have scraped through, um, and you have passed. I assume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I became a member of the, had two graduations, one in the morning for the degree and the one in the afternoon for the, to be accepted into the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Wow. That's quite a highfalutin title, isn't it? We were told very much at that, that we should be very proud because the the term to vet something is, is used as a standard for really high quality work. If you vet something, you really go into it in detail. I never thought of that before, but that is true, isn't it? Well, far superior to doctors. And what's my, I don't know whether it still is the law, but in those days, a doctor could not treat an animal. The college had got it so sewn up that it would be illegal for a doctor to treat an animal. But we, in an emergency, could treat a human being. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is bizarre, isn't it? It's what you call a closed shop. Very yeah. close stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I do always think that I, obviously being a doctor is very difficult and very hard and very complicated. However, you have everyone has one body and it is pretty much everyone has the same parts. Whereas with a vet, I mean, how many different animals are there that you could end up treating? And a frog's going to be different to a horse, isn't it? I mean, they've all got a heart and blood <laughs> pumping through their bodies, but what you do with them and how you deal with them is going to be vastly different, isn't it? Yeah, that was always fun. I mean, it's a lot more technical these days, and I'm sure they're better trained on those sort of um, exotic things, but we weren't. Uh, but you were still, by law, a bright. You couldn't refuse to treat any animal. Even if you didn't know what you were doing, you're supposed to look after it until such time as somebody who did know what they were doing Good. was brought along. So people bring in parrots. They bring in, I remember a guy bringing in a snake and saying, Ooh. can you tell me if it's pregnant? You know. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so yeah. it was very much James Herriot stuff. It really was. Yeah. So that... Uh, uh- so you went from veterinary college into veterinary practice, yes. I assume. Yes. As an assistant. Away. Yeah. Yeah. And went to Lancaster. I had was offered two jobs, one in Scarborough, 
1650 a year with a house and one in Lancaster at 1600 a year without a house. But chose the Lancaster one simply because it was a far more modern and up-to-date practice. The one in, in, in Scarborough was archaic. Um, the guy was a younger guy in, in, who was the boss in Lancaster. And they were just expanding from a two-man to a three-man practice. And um, so I went in as an assistant there. I was there for three years. Uh, but the, 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 the pathway then in veterinary medicine was that you, you look to become an, uh, a partner after three or four years. And I got the opportunity. I applied for, applied for a job at the college, actually, in the, in the large animal uh, department because they, they had a practice, in the, a small and a large animal practice in the, in the college, um, but didn't get that. I think that wouldn't have been me, to be honest. But then there was a job going just outside Edinburgh, a place called Haddington, just down the A1. That again, the boss was leaving. There were three of them, but they were expanding to the guy who set up the practice way back was was retiring, and they uh, were taking two of us in uh, with a view to going the part into the partnership in a year's time. So that was just what I was looking for. It was back in Scotland. It was near to your grandmother, you know, mother's mother, um, who was on her own and been a widow for well, since 1965. So. Um, we were we were close closer to her, so which was easier from that point of view, but also it was a decent practice. So yeah, went there in whatever that was. I graduated in seventy, went there in seventy three, and um, yeah, got established in seventy four. Went into the partnership there. Wow! And so presumably, obviously, I know where Haddington is, and Lancaster is quite you know fields and farms and things like that. So the animals that you were dealing with would be big animals as well as the pets and things yeah, it, it was it was a mixture both were mixed practices but in Lanc- in Lancaster I spent well we had a branch surgery in Morecambe I spent probably 70% maybe 65% of my time with small animals and the other was large animal but they were small farms what we call small holdings small dairy places milking 20 30 cattle Whereas in uh, Haddington, it was a big arable area. They grew um, barley a lot and potatoes. You could put anything. You could put plastic in the ground and it would grow there. It was such a fertile area. And um, so that was big estate farms. So we had like the Duke of Hamilton was one of our clients. Lord Haddington was one of our clients. And most of the, a lot of the farms were, it was farm managers you dealt with. So it was a different attitude. If if an animal died on a farm in in Lancaster, it was a oh, it was it was the end of the world. Yeah. Um, uh, the first question when you got to uh, a farm in 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 East Lothian, and we we probably spent seventy percent of our time there in large animal stuff. The first question was, is it worth doing anything with it? It was the value rather than the, 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 the it was seen in a different light, a completely yeah. different light. But with myself and and John Barr, who was the other guy who came in the partnership same time as I did. Um, he was a year behind me at college. We got on very well. We got on very well as families. Still, he died a few years ago, tragically. Um, still in touch with, with Francis, his his widow. We we were interested in the small animal side and could see that we were the only practice in a 17-mile radius. And therefore, people would tend to take, because the other guys weren't particularly interested in the small animal, they'd take their dogs and their cats, etc into edinburgh to the vets there and we thought this is daft we're throwing away money but john knew some of the vets in edinburgh quite well so he would go to their annual meeting where they fixed their prices 
he would then come back and fix our prices just slightly below theirs. So it wasn't That's genius. <laughs> this is practice. I hope I'm not going to get into trouble for saying it. But um, uh, so we, we developed that. And that one thing I enjoyed, I've never been good with my hands. I'm not good at DIY. I'm not good at art. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was the one subject at school I couldn't do anything in. In fact, <laughs> a friend and I used to compete to be bottom at art. We, we tried our <laughs> hardest. That was the whole point. You tried your hardest and saw, see, yeah, see who came bottom. But I was reasonably, I wasn't a brilliant surgeon, but I was reasonably competent at surgery and mm. could make a reasonable job of it. So I enjoyed that. And mm. so we, we developed that side as well. So that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it was a totally a big horse area, the pony club and that sort of thing was, was yeah. big. But the other two in the practice, the two senior partners, they um, they were into horses. Praise the Lord for that because... <laughs> It wasn't the horses, lovely animals in many ways, although dangerous because they're the only animal I know that both bites and kicks. Um, yeah. And um, But some of the people who worked with horses, you know, if, if you weren't horsey, you weren't part of their set, yeah. then they were suspicious of you. Yeah, you kind of, yeah, you don't, you don't fit in around here. Exactly, so. and I certainly didn't. I didn't come from that background at all on a council no. estate in Nottingham, you know. We didn't <laughs> yeah. have horses. Yeah. The only horses we saw were the rag and bone man, yeah. I was going to say, you went out on your horse on a Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on your bike into town. <laughs> Although I did enjoy riding. We had to learn to ride as part mm. of our horse. I love that, love that. Um, but, um Yeah. So on your on your veterinary course in Edinburgh, you learned that everyone yeah, had, had to, to learn to ride. Because sometimes you could, in terms of diagnosis, if you rode a horse, you could tell mm. a bit more about lameness and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And so where did things go from there? Because obviously when I was born many, many years ago, yeah. <laughs> um, you weren't a vet anymore. So, nope. And people always laugh when I tell them that we didn't really have pets. You didn't really want us to have pets. Because <laughs> Too expensive. Like, yeah. <laughs> didn't he used to be a vet? I was like, yeah, but we weren't really allowed pets <laughs> until we got one. But um, so where where did things go? <laughs> yes, they um, they all went wrong. Um, <laughs> when, when I first started working in Lancaster, we had a, our own petrol pump. It was a grotty place we had. It was a kind of shop front with an upstairs too. The downstairs was the waiting room. Upstairs was the, the office such as it was and opera, and the surgery where we saw people doubled as the operating theatre. Downstairs there was a sort of driving bit uh, where we could park the cars, but there was an old hand-cranked petrol pump. You've probably never seen one. No. And a great big lever, you, you sort of turned it round and round, and it was all metal. And I... One day I was putting petrol in the car and my back went and it was a, it was a disc. And from that point onwards, I was intermittently suffering from a disc problem. It was diagnosed and uh, that was fine. When I first went to Haddington, it was, it, it played up and I went to see a, a orthopedic specialist who gave me exercises and that sort of thing. And again, from time to time it would happen. And then in 1976, I guess it was early 76, um i it started to get worse and uh it's kind of a long story but it started to get worse and i was on painkillers and it got really bad and at its worst i was taking over the codeine was being used and i was i was putting down 40 odd codeine i was taking tablets before i could get out of bed yeah 
was as simple as that. And I actually did something. I won't go into the details of it, but somebody else got injured and it was my fault, really. Although they never, in those days, people didn't prosecute you for it. But these days I could have been in serious trouble for it um, because I should have taken responsibility. But we had to anaesthetize a horse because I had to stitch it and um, it was cut. And I should have hold, held the head and um, I didn't because I knew my back wouldn't stand up to it. Mm. Somebody else did it and they got injured. Mm. Um, not not desperately, but they got injured. I realised it was getting in the way. But then I kind of battled on and I went one day to do some stuff and, and on a farm. And I think it was, we were working in some pig pens and I had to duck under something. And the back went and I knew that was really bad. And then, I, long story, but again, but... I, I was due to go and see the orthopaedic specialist again. I'd been back to my doctor, and, who was a good friend. He was a local GP. And we he said, oh, he got me booked in. And this, I mean, when I say it was bad, I was walking with two sticks, taking all these pills, and I couldn't, I couldn't even lie down latterly. That was agony to lie down. I slept in a chair and um, waited till the, the Olympics were on the television from Montreal, I think it was. I watched the swim until about 2 o'clock in the morning. The radio wasn't all night, but when it come up, came on at five, I would listen to that and then get going. Anyway, at the end of that um, week, I think it was about a week I was in that state. I went to the toilet one day and even to, to pee, it was agony. It was absolute agony. And I knew from my medical understanding, such as it was, that um, this was not good. So I, I contacted GP and said, look, this has got worse. He said, right. He was about to go on holiday. He said, I'll do my best to get you fitted in, see the orthopedic surgeon uh, not but the, the orthopedic um, consultant so he booked me in for the friday so i got in on the friday went to see this guy he never properly examined me he just said i'm sending you over to see the neurosurgeon wow. and um they then uh, i thought it'd be monday he said no you're going straight away went over and by this time the pills were wearing off so i was in pretty much agony i got the x-ray they x-rayed me there so walked into the other hospital it was the other side of edinburgh um walked into the hospital and the the um, neurosurgeon was just walking towards us as it yeah. happened and said, you're the guy, I, th I think you're the guy I'm waiting for. He said, give, give me your x-ray, give your sticks to your wife because yeah. your mom was with me. Um, walk over there, walk back. He said, right, I'll operate as soon as I can get space. Wow. He never, he never examined me again. Me too. Um, could just see what was, and obviously he got the x-ray. And um, I went uh, went in, obviously, and that was the Friday. I didn't know this, but that surgeon, no, well, there were two things about him. One, it was a guy called Professor Gillingham. And one of your grandmothers, your mother's mother's friends, best friends, had worked for him. He was known in Edinburgh for all his, his neurosurgery stuff, but particularly for brain injuries. So it confirmed what my mother-in-law had always thought about me when she knew I was going to see this guy. <laughs> and um, and so, but he was going on holiday the next day. He operated at 10 o'clock at night, finished at two o'clock in the morning. When I was coming round, that wow, wooziness when you're coming round, the guy who just uh, helped him, his number two, was stood over my bed. And all he said was, well, you'll say thank you to us in the morning. A guy called Dr. Steers. Next morning he was back and he said, you're a very lucky guy. You could have been paralysed for life um, because two discs had 
had completely exuded. It, it's this, what we call the pulpy nucleus. It's like a plas- almost semi-liquid plastic stuff that's inside your disc, and it bursts out and lit, lies on the um, spinal nerves. And so they had to de- gently dissect that off the spinal nerves. No wonder you were in pain. Yeah, it was agony. And then all of a sudden, overnight, I went from 40-odd pills to nothing. Nothing, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but it was while I was in hospital, 1976, it was absolutely scorching hot. I was lying in hospital, and it was as if, it was as if, and I wouldn't say, you know, it's difficult to say, oh, God spoke to me. It was as if God was yeah, saying, yeah. I've given you a second chance, because all these things had happened. I'd just got in in time yeah. for all this. Yeah, well, and just to be like, you know, go over there now. That never happens, does it? Go there now, or I'll do it today. That, that, that never happens. Even back then, that never happened. Exactly. And um, and I was involved in, in the church. I was doing stuff at church. Obviously, I got a career in veterinary medicine, and that was going well. Yeah. Um, and then I was also involved in politics. I was constituency chairman for the what was the then the Liberal Party. I'd been asked if I would be a parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Party, but my partners put the kibosh on that because they said it would be bad for business because they were all Tories and, it, and you can imagine an area where we had Duke of Hamilton it was not on um, so I got that as well and I was enjoying that I was involved in other things could have gone in several directions but it became obvious the night just before I was about a week before I was going back to work John, this other partner that went in the partnership same time I did, came round. He was a bit fed up with something that happened at a partners meeting, and um, it made us think: should we be going somewhere else? And from from early years, people had said to me, "You should be in the ministry." I said, "No, don't want it. That's it." When we we're in Lancaster, we'd sat down and we worked it out and decided we couldn't afford it. Yeah. Um, etc etc and several times it when i was at uni people said you should be in the ministry because i did some preaching then and was involved in all sorts of things this time we felt god was saying go to some sort of full-time work church work but not the ministry and it wasn't until i was two years into a four-year course that i was convinced that it was the ministry i was wanting to do an academic career and again that was daft because i was not really suited for that i'm not that big an academic um but I just fancied that. Um, but God was qu- clearly saying, you need to be in the ministry. And that came through working in a church in Edinburgh. The, the minister and the elders, I knew the minister, I knew one of the senior people in the church. And they got together and they got a report to college and they said to me, we think you should go into ministry. And uh, I'd become convinced then, reluctantly. I will say I was kick- I dragged kicking and screaming to being a minister. So that's how you knew me. Yes. And, uh, you were yeah. born, of course, in the middle of the course in, in Switzerland. Yeah. So how come you did the course in Switzerland and not in the UK? Well, there's several reasons. One, there was a link between Scotland, the Scottish Baptist churches, and um, and the college. The guy who was secretary of the Scottish Baptist Union was a, a trustee of the college. I knew about it. I'd been there on a student conference when I was a student. And um, so I knew of it. I didn't know what it offered academically, but I knew of the, of the place. So I'd been there. I'd used up all my grant in England, in, in the UK. So wherever yeah. I went, it was going to cost us money. Whereas there, there was a, a provision, although that disappeared after a couple of years. No, after a year, I think it was. So I had to work as well. Um, but um, also, I'd always fancied living on the continent for a while and getting a different view of my own culture. 
and that was a, it was a college where there were people from mainly from all over Europe. There were some from Australia and, and America as well, but there was, that was limited deliberately because it was meant for Europeans set up after yes. the war by the Southern Baptists. And um, that was uh, so that that really appealed to me and living in a cross-cultural community, yes. um, which wasn't always easy, but it was it was a real it, you, you give you a different perspective on life, really. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're in Switzerland, obviously decide ministries or feel that ministry is actually the, probably the thing that you should be doing. Um, what? How do you end up, because obviously we, we moved to London. How did you end up in London from Switzerland? <laughs> was, somebody came, there was a sabbatical scheme with the Baptist Union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland um, mm-hmm. where guys came out for a few months, or two months at a time to do sabbatical. And there was one person um, who came and we got very friendly with. And it was the last two, it was, uh, he came for November, December, the end of, because we did two semesters, up, one up to Christmas and then four month semesters and then one after the new year. And uh, his family came and joined him over Christmas to spend Christmas in Switzerland, which was attractive to them. Yeah. It was all very nice. Yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, he, it was... I think in our third year that they had, uh, yeah. So we were already looking and, and talking with we're talking with one church actually in in the north of Scotland at Bridgeton outside Aberdeen. I've been there. I preached, and they kept they came back and said, "Can we have some more um, tapes of sermons and all this?" And that was going on. And Malcolm came. Malcolm Goodspeed was his name, and his family came, and uh, we got to know them very well. And Mal- Malcolm said, "There's a church in in London that's looking for a minister, and he'd been minister of a neighbouring church actually at North Hamble, man." Just, just as you will know that just down the road from where we've finished up um, and was very friendly with uh, Roger Hayden, who was the minister at uh, Haven Green at that time, but was moving on, was planning to move on. He said, and I think you'd be a perfect fit. So we said, well, look, don't do anything. Don't push it. But if any, if you get the opportunity, if, if it comes to you, then feel free to mention our name. So he, they did. The church was struggling. They, they'd seen various folk, but they didn't think they were right and they said, somebody contacted Malcolm and said, have you got anybody in mind? You know the church, you've been around, you know you know what it's like. And he said, as it happens, yes. So the next thing, I got a, a message from um, the church, obviously, would I go over and preach? And I remember I was actually preaching on the Sunday evening in the church, in the, the local, the, the college chapel was the local Baptist church, and I was doing something in the church on the Sunday evening. So I flew over on the Saturday morning, Oh, it was the Friday, no, Friday evening, I think, met deacons and stuff on the Saturday, saw the mans, stayed with our good friends, who you will know, Doug and Judy, and um, then on the Saturday morning, on the Sunday morning, preached, and um, and Doug said to me before I left, and then got on the plane and flew back to Switzerland to do something in the evening, um, and um, they, uh, this is crazy life, really, yeah. and I... Doug said, he said, I can see it's going very positively. What would your response be? So I said, well, look, yeah, I'd be very positive, but my wife needs to see it and see she's happy. Otherwise, I'll be in big trouble. Um, so even if, the, if there's a call, we won't accept it until we've been end of term, April, come and see. This was March time, I think it was. So the, the call was issued. I think it was an 80-odd percent call. And um, uh, they were church were pleased with that. And so we came over, saw, um, met the deacons again, watched the cup final that day. <laughs> and uh, and by the end of that Saturday, your mother said, yeah, this is right. 
this is right. So on the next morning, Roger, who was still there, he was about to leave, but he was still there, announced, we sat in the congregation while he announced who his successor was going to be. No way. After the call. So it was all bang, bang, bang. And there was only one week. He left one week, was inducted in his new church the next week. And the next week, which was the 1st of August, 81, I was inducted into the church at um, at uh, Haven Green. Wow, that was super speedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of this fiddling about. <laughs> it couldn't <laughs> no. be because of the distance involved. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't. Um, and then, okay, so, so now you're a Baptist minister and you were at Haven Green for how long? 25 years and six months exactly. <laughs> That's a long time. It is. It never seemed a long time, though, because the church yeah. changed so much. Yeah, true. When we first went there, the council said that the area changed population. Well, yeah, 25% of the population changed every year. Wow. And the church was like that, as you would yeah, have experienced yeah. it. People came and, went, came and went. Yeah, yeah. 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 Very much suburban London, very much commu- um, sort of bedsit land around the church. Old, big family houses with servants' quarters upstairs. There was still the remnant of that. There were people in the church when I went there. One woman particularly who'd been in service all her life, from 12 years old, she'd been a servant. Um, but that was dying out, and those places were converted into apartments, really. Mm. so yeah it was always on changing so it was it was good it was exciting there was a vibrancy about it really yeah yeah it kept it interesting and moving and but you didn't just see latterly obviously you as again during your time as minister you were involved in lots of other things as well because you can't just do one thing at a time can you um I won't lecture you on the podcast but um the you then moved into so you didn't just stop doing anything after 25 years and six months of being a Baptist minister, you moved on into other things. So talk about how that happened and what that was. In in the year 2000, London Wasps, who trained down the road at the the same training ground as Queen's Park Rangers Football Club, had seen chaplaincy at Queen's Park Rangers. And and the guy who was in charge then um, was uh, keen to have chaplaincy for the rugby club. And he contacted Sports Chaplaincy UK, wasn't called that then, but call it, yeah. that's what it is now, and um, said, can you find me a chaplain? And I was dragged in because I had a wider responsibility Baptist-wise at that point. And I gathered other people together, the Method- Methodist area person and the um, rural dean for the, for the Anglicans, to help them look and try and find somebody. Uh, long process, but wasn't a long process, but after a while, th- they came back and said, what about you? And um, the guy who was chaplain at QPR, who I knew very well, he was a Baptist minister down in the bush, shepherd's bush, not the bush. Um, he was kept saying to me, this is your job, Dave. This is your job. Um, and what's more, your mother encouraged me to do it. The only thing she ever encouraged me to take on. Really. <laughs> and uh, she said, you'll enjoy this because I've always been into sport. That was another big thing at school and all through my life, particularly team sports. And uh, so yeah, I took it on in 2001, beginning of 2001, and then got involved in the idea of developing rugby union chaplaincy. There were only about three or four of us working in rugby union at that time. And came out of a meeting, which we had pre the chaplain's conference one year, um, with a responsibility for developing <laughs> rugby union chaplaincy across the UK which was not easy given that I got a lot of other responsibilities as well 
it eventually became obvious that this was the this needed time given to it and uh, in 2000 but then in 2006 that right yes i had an approach from the church in Lucerne, the English-speaking church in Lucerne. Now, that's another story because I got involved in that when I was at college and I'd used that as part of my course in terms of practical theology, but also uh, during that time, it was just an English-speaking um, service at first. We developed that and it became a church. We'd constituted it as a church. And they'd ask if we would stay, actually, and not go back to Britain. But that didn't work out. and That's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but they came to me and said, our minister's leaving. He was American. You know, they get people from all over the world. Would you be interested? And um, so I got the and, and Sports Champions UK was saying to me, what about taking on the this role? And there was the so we went over to Switzerland, spent a week there. They said, come and see anyway and talk to us. And our people aren't used to, you know, going through the process. It would be helpful for them to be able to talk with you and interview you and all that. And we went up and down, up and down. Yes, this is right. No, it's not. Yes, it's right. No, it's not. Came to the end of that year and I took a retreat to decide what, and came to the conclusion that it was time to move on. That would know that'd be the end of 2005, I guess it was. And um, so I came came back from that and said to your mother, well, yeah, I've decided it's time to move on. She said, well, I could have told you that. <laughs> I always say to men in the ministry, listen to your wives because they know what God wants before you do. And um, so we started that process then it was a question of well what is it i got the two choices we had an interview a phone interview with the folks at um, in lucerne and we were very interested in that but at the end of that interview we were both on the phone to them we came off put the phone down looked at each other and said no it's not right which meant i was to go in my only option then was to go into doing full-time developing rugby union chaplaincy which i did from february i think it ended end of january 2007 till I retired in 2011 at the same time being chaplain at London Wasps which I'd taken on back in 2001 so that was that was where my career came to a blinding halt when I retired no it didn't quite but yeah yeah, retired is probably a strong word that doesn't describe what you uh, what you do now (laughs) So what do you do now? Everything. Yeah, I'm involved in the local church. Well, since your mother died, um, obviously I've got nobody to stop me doing things. Yeah. (laughs) I always say to people, one of the big things that I lost was a break, a foot break and a hand break. Sometimes they were applied very gently and sometimes they came on a bit harder and sometimes they were slammed on and we went into this massive skid. (laughs) And uh, Yeah, it was chaos for a little while. And then we sorted it out. And we kind of got back on track. And, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm involved in the church. I'm still. I've now come off. I was a chair of Sports Chaplains UK for nine years. Mm. On the board for eleven years. Finished that in June. Um, just about extricated myself from all those responsibilities. Just about. Um, <laughs> but still, technically, have an oversight of rugby union and cricket in the. UK. I'm now chaplain at Northampton Cricket, where we've got lots of projects on, and enjoying that thoroughly. Uh, cricket, probably my number one sport, although rugby is very close to it now. And involved in the church, and yeah, all sorts of other bits and yeah. things. You know, friends and busy, busy. yeah, yeah. Busy, busy. So it's quite a it's quite a wide and varied 
career, isn't it? It's not been, as I always say, the reason I started the podcast is because so many of us, our careers, our lives have not been linear at all. And yours is very much an example of that, isn't it? But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you talked about at the start, that kind of being involved in church stuff, but doing um, acting and that performative kind of element, but also when you look at everything you've done, there's also relationship in there, isn't there? Because actually, even when you're dealing with somebody's animal, you've got to have a relationship with the person before you start cutting up somebody's animal. I couldn't couldn't have done the pastoral stuff, I don't think, without having been a vet. Yeah. I was not good with people. And that taught me how to relate to people. Yeah. They, they, you know, they told you what was wrong with the animal. They didn't realise they were telling you, but that was how you diagnosed much of the stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, that's, I always think that's why, because the last episode of, or last few episodes of, um, oh, what's the Harriet? Yeah. Um, all creatures great and small. Creatures great and small. And they've got the new guy in and he's all with his book and everything. And they were like, no, no, you need to listen to the person. <laughs> it's like, they'll tell you. He's like, oh yeah, no, that we makes used to sense. call it the art of veterinary medicine. Yes. Yes. It's very subtle, but it's there, isn't it? If you listen for it. So obviously you've done lots and lots of different things. What do you think has been your biggest challenge? This was an interesting question. Yeah. And obviously there have been points in my life, my illness, my back, yeah. your mother dying, when yeah. life changed dramatically. And they're all challenges. But yeah. I think looking at it, my biggest challenge is facing up to myself. Mm. <laughs> Acknowledging who I am, how I operate, on a spiritual level, who I am in in God as well, yeah. in Christ. Um, Romans, as Paul writes, he says, um, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Yeah. But with sober judgment, acknowledge what's what I'm like. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, then if you've got a good, Jesus says, love what others as you love yourself. You know. And if I can't love myself because I don't like the bits of myself, well, if I can't love myself, you know, it's difficult to love anybody else. In, in the sense of accepting and wanting the best for, that's what love is. Yeah. Um, and um, But also if I can't accept myself with all my errors and mistakes and, and fault lines that lie in me, then I'm not going to be able to accept anybody else. Yeah. I'm going to be more judgmental. So it's been a struggle. And in lots of places, I remember when I was – when I was very ill with the back, your mother went out one day with Mark, took him to the pictures. I think just to get out of the house, she was fed up with me. I was, you know, it was before I was, I was able to lie down and she came back. I was still in bed and she, she really lost it with me and rightly so. And uh, I said, I'll take the consequences of this. And she said, no, you won't. I will. Yeah. And that really stuck with me and learning that sort of things about myself. And yeah, mm-hmm. you, you know, that yeah. that's been the biggest challenge and it goes on i've had yeah, to learn yeah. uh, you know over the last few years what it's like in terms of retirement and you know beginning to accept and jill said this on her you know becoming dependent more mm. that's um, and you know rebel against that in many ways but it, it's accepting that's the sort of person i am yeah and, and living learning to live with that person and be at peace with that person because god knows what i'm like and learning that he accepts me as I am doesn't mean he doesn't want me to change. Yeah. But he doesn't say change and then you'll be okay. Yeah. He says, I know what you like. 
you need to know what you like because it determines what I do. One of the big things I learned just recently was last few years was how much I need to feel needed, not to be needed, but to feel needed. So and I watch I say so much I need to do this or I should do that. Yeah. I have to stop myself saying that and um just accept, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um so okay. that and that is a constant challenge. The other things yeah. were not temperate, living with it, you know, on my own obviously is a challenge. Missing your mum is a big challenge. Yeah. But all the other things sort of get subsumed in that. Who am yeah. I? And what am I like? And just accepting that and, yeah. and facing up to it and living with it and trying to change the bits I can change. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trusting that God may help me with the bits that I find it difficult to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. That, does that make any sense? No, know? yeah, no, I think it makes perfect sense. And I think as well, when we go through all the different transitions of life, that's where we get caught up again in, oh, okay, what does that mean about who I am? now because we do continue to change and there are some bits that take longer than others aren't there and yeah so it's always a bit a bit weird so in your many years of of life (laughs) what's the best advice you've been given that maybe you go back to this I can't well when I was at theological college in terms of ministry there was a guy called Keith Parker still alive and um, he taught us practical theology was became a good friend really and he stopped me in the corridor. I think I was singing or whistling or doing something, walking down the Likely. corridor. And it was something Keith wasn't the sort of thing he did. He um, he just stopped me and said, there are two things you must never lose. One is your enthusiasm and the other is your sense of call. And that, that's that been so big a help to me in terms of ministry. I think that my dad had, I mean, I was very close to my granddad and I loved my dad as well very much. I had the chance to tell him even when he was desperately ill at the end. Um, But he had all these little sayings. And one of his favorite ones was the graveyards are full of people. The world could never do without. And that's always stuck in me to get a true perspective on where I fit into things. I'm not that important. (laughs) I may think I am. Other people may think at times, although I think it's very rare that I'm important. (laughs) I'm not. And, um, you know, if if I can, when I was at school, we had, it was part of the debating society and we, we had a, 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 any questions one time. And I, the only reason I remember this is one of the teachers mentioned it, I think I was in the fifth year at that time, to my parents at a, a you know, parents' evening. Uh-huh. The question was, what do you want people to say about you when mm. you, you know, and um, when you pass on? And I said, well, if if there's one person who could say life was better because he existed, yeah, then that's that's good, yeah. You know? And um, just it, it's the impact we make on people that matters, yeah, yeah, rather than what we achieve. Mm. And um, yeah, I think that's that for me has been a great thing to learn. And um, you know, I thank my dad for that little phrase: "The graveyards yeah. are full of people the world Thank could you. never do without." Yeah. We're all going to pass on sometime. Yeah, yeah. We and the world will move on. Yeah, yeah, and it, 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 some will miss us. Yeah, um, but very few yeah. know, compared to the great scheme of things. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, that's a good one, isn't it? And then, what advice would you give 
to someone else, to other people? This was difficult as well because I don't give advice. I help people to look at options. You always ask questions. That's my memory. If I had a question, you'd always ask me a question back and I'd be like, no, 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 I'm looking for an answer, (laughs) not a question. And I'm not prepared to to give people advice about their lives because I've got enough problems decisions about my own i can help you make the choices and yeah. look at the choices the decision has to be yours but i think if there's one thing i would say value the moment mm. be present in the present yes when my father was as you know your granddad took a lot of pictures he yes. was ever forever cameras as soon as a Instamatics came out, he had one of those. Once he got slides, he had one of those. When he got a movie camera, he had one of those. And we got on holiday and my mother would have stuff hanging around her neck. You know? he was, she was like a donkey, really, carrying his kit. And I thought, he never sees life. That's why I hardly take a photograph. He only um, sees life through the, through the lens of a camera. Yeah. I want to experience it now because this is the only moment I have. Yeah. The whole business of the graveyards the the past some people live in the past mm. that's gone i can't do anything about it i can't change it i may regret some things yeah. i can't change it some people live in the future i may never have that i've no yeah. guarantee of that all i have is today so value today yeah moment and the people you're with and the people who are around you you know and jesus said sufficient to the day is the evil of it you know but he meant just live in the day. Don't get all caught up about what's going to happen. Yeah, plan. I'm not saying don't plan. I'm not saying don't look back and, and learn from the past, but be in the moment. Mm. Tell you that. This is the time I've got today. And let's enjoy it as much as we can. Sometimes it's easier than others. But at least, as I've said to several folks recently, you know, we're still standing and still breathing. Yeah. And life very is brilliant. a very, very precious gift. Yeah. And I, think, and I think it's even worse now. You talk about granddad with all his cameras, but we now have that all on our phone and we're in our phone and we're taking photos. And, you know, you go to a concert and everyone's recording the concert. And I'm like, no one's watching that back. Yeah. Just enjoy the concert. Like maybe take one photo of you and your friends there so you've got a memory of your friends. And, you know, that's, that's the bit you want to remember. And just enjoy singing along and doing whatever. Um, not recording terrible recordings of a concert that no one else wants to see. I mean, it's just, yeah, being in the moment is, we've lost it a lot, haven't we, I think. Brilliant. So this is uh, is my Christmas podcast. So I'm going to move into some Christmas questions before Mm. we end, because we love Christmas in our house. Um, So a little bit of Christmasness. So what was your favourite thing about Christmas as a child? I've been, this, is, this has been great looking back over all this and uh, trying to remember. I think it was the, it's just the, the excitement of it, the anticipation. Oh. When, when I was quite young, my dad, the, the church choir would go out Christmas Eve and sing the various people's houses they went to and, and sang who were linked to the church. And... Um, they, he would come home. I don't know. It seemed to me the middle of the night, but it was probably about <laughs> 10 or half past 10. I would be in bed and he, I'd be waiting for him to come home. And he'd always said he'd seen Santa. <laughs> and that was, you know, I could go to sleep then. I was, yeah, yeah. was okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> so that's one memory. But also then Christmas night, because father was my father was captain of the boys' brigade, mother captain of the girls' brigade. And um, they were both involved in the Young People's Fellowship, the YPF. And there were lots of 
young people and they were most of them were eight to ten years older than me and the boys brigade football team we all you know we were watching that yeah. every week in the winter and they were my big heroes and a lot of them would come around christmas night because their own families were drinking and that and they, they were somewhere to go and be together we'd have a party and we'd play daft games and i loved that it oh, made fun. i had no family I had yes. no, both my mother and father were well effectively only children um and i was an only child i had no uncles aunts whatever that was my family yeah and those were great nights at christmas i look yeah. forward to that even more than the presents in many ways i enjoyed my presents um but yeah that's, yeah, that's fun. some of the memories yeah and i remember one christmas when i forgot my first football boots a couple of the lads from the football team came around christmas afternoon took me down the local park and we played football, you know. That's cute. That's cute. But that's that is the fun, though, isn't it? It's being together. It's having a laugh. It's yeah, yeah. It's doing the fun stuff. And so, what do you enjoy most about Christmas? Now you don't have to say spending time with your daughter. Yeah, no, I won't then. <laughs> <laughs> it is the fun time. It's the silly yeah. things, you know. Yeah. Um, and just being together and enjoying. The presents. One thing I loved, particularly when your mum was alive, and I still do it to a certain extent, but uh, was was just writing little notes on presents and doing daft presents. Yeah. I remember one year because when people got married, they tended to leave the ring boxes because they're no mm. use for them afterwards. I had a drawer full of them. I kept them. And one year I went down to Bentall's in in uh, Kingston, and I got a one pound gift token, <laughs> and I I put it in the ring box, wrapped it up. Obviously, it was a ring box because you could tell yeah. with the wrapping, and put a note on it said uh, a small token of my affection. And it was just, I just loved the fun of it. Yeah. And then there was a, yeah. there was also a good present for her, but I, I would yeah. cover that up. So if I knew it was something she really wanted to do, like she always wanted to be on the stage at the Albert Hall, she wanted to oh, see yeah. Rule Britannia. That yeah. was her thing at the last night of the proms. <laughs> And uh, which she would have been capable of if she hadn't yeah. been so nervous, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, could have done it. Yeah. Uh, but so we booked to go and see um, Lang Lang, who yes. she loved anyway. But it was a concert in the round. So he was where the stalls are. And I booked seats on the stage and did it well, all secretly. Yeah. So it was, you know, just to sort yeah. of. And, and now to give folks presents that they're going to enjoy. And I think that with the, yeah. with the you probably don't never enjoyed a present I've given you. But, oh, <laughs> no. Uh, but with the, with um, the grandchildren, you know, with the yeah. two grandsons, um, Mikey and Alfie, I just enjoy giving them something which is, yeah. which they're going to enjoy and remember. Yeah. And that's, that gives me great pleasure to see other yeah. people. One of my great things is seeing other people develop and enjoy life. And yeah. if I can add to that, then that that's great. Yeah. And Christmas is a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. Brilliant. And what was your or has been your most memorable Christmas in a good way? <laughs> this was a difficult one because we've had some pretty miserable I was going to say, yeah, that's why I put in a good way because there, <laughs> there are some quite difficult Christmases along the way. Yes. I, was trying, I was trying to keep it positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, it, it's difficult. Um, they're all good, really. It's being together as the family. Yeah. I think those times when were those unique times when your, you, you know, Nana was down, your mother's mother, yeah. and my parents were there, yeah, and my granddad, yeah, and we were all together as a family. Yeah, um, they were, they were good times, and yeah. to be held on to, as your mother said, not long before she died, we've got good memories. Yeah. 
definitely lots of them and I think you're right and I think I was thinking about the other day I was thinking about we had a few Christmases when Moy and Jim and Ross and Stuart were with us as well yeah. like you know it was kind yeah, of that's right yeah together having a it's that thing it's just having a good time having a good time together watching movies playing games eating lots of food <laughs> you know that's that's the fun part really yeah. the presents yeah. are extras but it you know the fun it's about part people yeah. One of my things at the cricket club at the moment is, is banging on, and I am banging on about it, is saying, yeah, we're about cricket, we're about a business, making money, but ultimately it's about people. And if mm. we value people, then that other things will fit together. Yeah. 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 Yes. I think that's the same for most organisations, really, um, that they forget a lot of the time um, because it does become about the money, but actually without the people, you're not going to get the money anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But without the right, yeah, it's um, anyway. Uh, so uh, obviously, you spoke about music being a part of your thing, uh, you spoke about whistling and singing and yeah. <laughs> all those things that we all do. I find myself doing it now. Um, so what is your favorite Christmas song and/or carol? Oh, my favorite Christmas song would be I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, every day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Um, my favourite carol is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yes. Many happy memories of that. Yeah. In terms of, you know, conducting the choir at, uh, at Haven Green, it was always the last thing we sang. Yeah. And the first came to that last verse. Yeah, it's amazing. And we went latterly with our friends, Doug and Judy, we used to go to the Royal Choral Society's Christmas concert at the Albert Hall. We would sit up in what's called the choir, which is at the back of the stage, as it were, and you'd be next to the organ, and there were trumpeters from one of the household divisions. There'd be the choir and the orchestra, the whole Albert Hall packed, and we'd be singing um, Heart the Herald Angels Sing with the trumpeters playing the descant and the organ, the whole place shaking from the organ. Just magnificent. Yeah. As a, as a tune, as a, as a carol, but also the carol itself says all, all you want to say about Christmas. Yeah that Jesus yeah. comes, that we can have life and have it in abundance yeah. um, and bring us new life and, and yeah. hope. Um, and that, to me, just the carol sums up Christmas, really. It's theology as well as it's uh, the beauty of the music, the, the Mendelssohn tune. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing everything. I have learned a few things along the way. And massive happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to all our listeners to everyone that's listened this year to all the amazing people but thank you for today and um and i'll see you for christmas soon not too yes. long a few weeks away and uh yeah thank you for sharing and maybe maybe you'll be back <laughs> the next things that you do yeah, and I, hope, I hope you have a good interview with santa as well yeah thanks if i can yeah. find him pin him down he's a bit busy at the moment so <laughs> brilliant thanks Thanks so much for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you fancy telling your story, do get in touch.